Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. New Zealander Max Harris is on the ascendant. A Rhodes Scholar who, while studying public policy and law at Oxford University, earned an All Souls Fellowship, returns home for the festival to advocate a new politics. In his recently published book, The New Zealand Project, he argues that academics and intellectuals have failed to deepen the political discourse, that politics is dominated by pragmatism, and that technocratic policies have replaced value-based ones. In this year's Michael King Memorial Lecture, Harris called for a strategic intervention inspired by the tenets of care, community and creativity in an Aotearoa New Zealand context and driven by the imagination and impatience of the young to create a better country. We hope you enjoy this lecture. It's a privilege to introduce this session. I said to Max, how old are you? And he said, I'm 28. I said, when are you 29? Oh, next month. So he's, he's edging towards 29, so he's getting up there now. But he is one of a quite extraordinary new generation of New Zealanders. So he travelled to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship where he studied uh, law and public policy. And he gained for himself an All Souls Fellowship, which some of you may know is one of the most sort of distinguished things you can get. I was doing some research and um, you have to sit two general papers, then you sit two specialist papers. You used to have to, I'm going to say it just because it was a great story, write a three-hour essay on a single word that they gave you on the day, but Max said they dropped that before he got there. And then you're interviewed by 60 fellows. There are about 12,000 applicants, and they give out between one and three fellowships a year. And Max Harris holds one of those fellowships, which allows him to study at Oxford for seven years, uh, do his research funded. So he is the new generation, and he comes today to challenge us to think about who we are as a people in our political realm and how we might change that for the better. Please welcome to the stage Max Harris. It's a great honour for me to give this year's Michael King Memorial Lecture. Um, I still remember 12 years ago in my final year of school in Wellington getting my hands on a copy of Michael King's Penguin History of New Zealand. That book helped to bring New Zealand history alive for me. It made me feel like part of a journey that had started centuries ago and that will continue for centuries after me. I never had the privilege of meeting Michael King, but two other things about his work stand out to me. He tried to grapple with the question of what it means to be Pākehā in this country, to own the best and worst of our history. His answers are not the only answers that could be given to that question, but asking that question opened up a space for further conversations. And importantly, Michael King aspired to tell complex and nuanced stories to a general audience. And what I've seen and read, he never patronized or demeaned his audience. He spoke up to them. He assumed and respected their intelligence. And in doing so, he lifted all of us. I hope I can swim in his slipstream today. I want to speak up to you in the knowledge that, as Anne said, I'm only 28, and that there are life experiences and insights in this audience which I can't see at the moment, that far exceed mine. And I want to speak up to you in the knowledge that we're a smart country, a country that is bursting at the seams with all the different kinds of intelligence, social, practical, emotional, analytical, and a country that does even better when we think through and do things together. I want to speak to you first about a set of experiences that changed my life two or three years ago. Those experiences led me to write a book called The New Zealand Project. I've told this story before in the book and elsewhere, but I want to tell it in a slightly different and perhaps deeper way today. New Zealand writer Ashley Young says in her brilliant collection of essays, Can You Tolerate This?, how wonderful it is that a simple stumbling block can change the entire story of our lives and deaths. And that line rings true to me, though my stumbling block didn't seem so wonderful at the time. 
I was studying in Oxford three years ago on a new Master of Public Policy course, the brainchild of a New Zealander at Oxford, Nairi Woods. And at the end of the course, we had to do a summer project, a practical placement. We were asked to dream big, to think of our ideal job and to try to pursue that for a couple of months. For a while, I thought I'd be happy anywhere, but at some point it occurred to me that I'd love to try to work with Helen Clark at the United Nations Development Program in New York. In an interview, some written materials, Several phone conversations later, I found myself in Helen Clark's executive office doing a mixture of strategy research and speechwriting support. That experience, in particular, watching and learning from Helen Clark's discipline and dedication and diplomatic nous, was transformative. But it was another experience in New York that would have an even bigger effect on me, a stumbling block that came largely out of the blue. On one Sunday evening, in an emergency room at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, I was told that I had a dilated aorta, the blood vessel that carries oxygen from your heart to the rest of your body. Another term the doctors used to describe what I had was an aortic aneurysm. The reason a dilated aorta is concerning is that if the aorta expands to a particular point, it is likely to tear or dissect, meaning that your, your body's supply of oxygen is cut off with fatal consequences. And I was told that it was likely I'd need open heart surgery to address this. I say that this came largely out of the blue because an Auckland junior doctor, a friend of mine, had told me months earlier at a wedding about some heart conditions I might be predisposed to due to some specific features of my anatomy he'd noticed. <laughs> I mentioned this when I turned up to Mount Sinai Hospital having had fleeting chest pains in the weeks before and having fainted in my apartment one weekend morning had I not mentioned what this Auckland friend of mine, Andrew McDonald, had told me, the doctors wouldn't have run the tests that they did, and I might not be here now. The six months that followed that news in Mount Sinai Hospital were some of the most testing and ter terrifying times of my life. At Mount Sinai, surgeons wanted to operate immediately. My mum, a nurse who's in the audience, persuaded me not to let that happen, and I found out later that the surgeons wanted to perform the wrong kind of surgery. On a darkening Friday evening, a week after I was discharged, I was on a mega bus going to Baltimore to see the world expert in something called Lois Dietz syndrome. The person I was seeing, Dr. Dietz, had been the first to discover or describe the syndrome in 2005. In Baltimore, after meeting with Dr. Dietz, I got the news that I'd been dreading in the days before. It was highly likely that I had Lois Dietz syndrome, a connective tissue disorder that makes it more likely that people will experience uh, breaking of connective tissue in their body, and in particular, torn blood vessels around the heart. The syndrome tends to appear in people who are skinny, relatively flat-chested, with thin wrists and several other specific features. I remember straining to remain positive around that time. I'd read that the life expectancy of those with the syndrome was 26, and at that time, I'd just turned 26. But Dr. Dietz told me these numbers were out of date and that he expected me to lead a relatively long and healthy life. Dr. Dietz also told me that I definitely did not have some truly horrendous other syndromes, though I concluded later that one of the tricks of the best empathetic doctors is that they can always point to something worse that you don't have, <laughs> even when what you have might be pretty bad. Nevertheless, I'd still need to undergo major surgery in Oxford, what they called valve-sparing aortic root replacement surgery. Thinking about that surgery and waiting for it were further challenges. There was a two to three percent chance that I would die in the surgery. Then there was the worry that something would go wrong beforehand. I lived for about three months with an aorta that I was told could dissect at any moment, which meant that almost every twinge in my body, that cold numbness in my foot, that strain in my shoulder, I saw as a possible precursor to my aorta tearing. In the end, I made it through the surgery in November 2014 with the help of extraordinary nurses, doctors, and medical professionals in the British NHS, and with the help of my family and friends, in particular, my dad, my mum, my twin brother, and sister. After I woke up from the surgery, I scrawled notes on, the, on pieces of paper, passing them to the nurses and my family, as I couldn't speak, and the notes said, you're all champs, and I'm so happy to be alive. The period around surgery had not been easy, Getting to sleep for any length of time was difficult. I'd fall asleep, feel like I was willing myself to stay with my vivid and strange dreams, only to wake up after what seemed like 10 hours, 
45 minutes later. I kept myself entertained while awake in the middle of the night in hospital by watching highlights of the New Zealand cricket team playing in the 1990s. And just to keep us all laughing a bit, my sister knocked her head on a beam in the accommodation she was staying in in Oxford and was admitted for con concussion and lay in a chair next to me while I was recovering from the operation. <laughs> a week before the surgery, though, I got some other news, this time positive, and Anne's mentioned it in her kind introduction. The decision to have surgery in Oxford after returning from New York had turned my plans upside down. I'd had flights booked to come back to New Zealand, and these had to be pushed back. So I found myself with three months on my hands at a time when I wanted to do anything except worry about the upcoming operation. So I decided to sit this unusual examination, the All Souls Prize Fellowship examination, an exam of the kind you might only find in a place like Oxford. This test that goes over two days in September, October, that any current or former Oxford student can sit, that generally only um, 100 people sit. It consists of six hours on a specialist topic, in my case law, and six hours answering general questions. And just to give you a flavor of those general questions, in my year they included, do we need borders? Is ri rising life expectancy a good thing? And did Eve, as in from Adam and Eve, make the right choice? I didn't answer on that one. <laughs> Five or six candidates are shortlisted for an interview, uh, and as Anne said, one or two or three students from the interview are selected and get seven years of guaranteed funding to do any kind of research or writing. And I decided to sign up. It was a long shot, but I thought it'd be fun to say I tried the exam and had the experience. I realized that this is not how everyone would spend time in the run-up to surgery, or everyone's idea of fun. The exam was a draining 12 hours, and I'll admit, part of my mind drifted during the exam to whether I'd ruin the exam for everyone else by having a medical episode. I could just see the headlines, New Zealander dies in 12-hour Oxford exam. <laughs> but to my great surprise, uh, I was called back for an interview, and I thought the interview went terribly, but a week later I was called to say I'd passed the exam and that I'd been elected to a prize fellowship immediately, almost without a choice about whether I would take it up. And that was one week before my heart surgery. I'm going into all of this detail partly because these experiences inform who I am and how I see the world, partly because this series of events still appears odd to me, involving as it did an unusual, strange, new medical condition and an unusual, even stranger, but very old exam. But I'm also explaining this background because it provided the context for the writing of my book, The New Zealand Project. After the news about Lois Dietz syndrome, my heart surgery and getting the All Souls Prize Fellowship, the way I thought about the future had changed. It was not just that suddenly, overnight, I had an offer of funding for the next seven years. My ability to plan for the long term was also stunted as a result of the shock of the surgery and the fact that I had a syndrome with unpredictable symptoms. A lot of people in this room, maybe not all of us, lead lives on the assumption that we'll live perhaps into our 70s. That expectation of a long life gives us freedom and a sense of security, and I felt like that had been taken away from me perhaps temporarily. As my close friend Andrew Dean would say to me later, the future had always been part of my identity. I like to dream about future years, to dream of different tra trajectories, all of which I know is a privilege, but I felt like that part of my identity had been excised. And along with that foreshortened vision, that constricted horizon, I felt an urgent desire to do something meaningful. I felt for the first, first few months after surgery, like I should do everything as if it was the last thing I'd get to do. So I began to sketch the plans for a book on New Zealand. If this was the last thing I could write, this is what I'd want to do. I felt a sense of social debt to New Zealand, having benefited from New Zealand public education and society in so many ways. I believed that some things were deeply wrong with the country, and I thought we had a unique opportunity to make things better. It was New Zealand politics that I wanted to focus on. The process by which ideas, identities, and individuals gain or lose power. Parliamentary politics is part of that, but it also includes campaigns and activism. I'd studied politics here in Auckland, as well as law. Much of law is politics that has become permanently embedded in the principles of society. I'd gone on to do further study, as Anne mentioned, and I'd engaged in politics in New Zealand, in particular with campaigning groups like the criminal justice group Just Speak, and the environmental group Generation Zero. Politics remains a central vehicle for changing minds and changing culture, 
And I was particularly interested in etching some new ways of thinking about politics that would highlight to people who'd lost faith that politics matters. We give up on it at our peril. So I immersed myself in the eight areas of New Zealand politics that seemed to me most significant for our future. I read history books and policy papers, interviewed people in New Zealand and overseas, and tried to think hard about common themes and connections. And what I recognized later was that there was a symmetry between how I was thinking about my future and how I saw New Zealanders viewing our country's future. I had a foreshortened sense of what was ahead of me, a narrow tunnel vision-like view of the present. And the more I spoke and thought about the state of New Zealand politics, the more I felt there was also a cramped sense of what was possible for us collectively here. There's a concept in political science known as the Overton window, the idea that at any one time in politics, there's a window of what's seen as politically possible, ideas outside of which are just dismissed. They don't fit in. And our Overton window, New Zealand's Overton window, seemed very narrow. Writing the book then was a way for me to reclaim the idea of a future in my own life, a way to grasp again that I could have a future. But it also became clear to me that we needed to reclaim the future collectively to realize we could change politics for the better. We needed, in the words of a recent book, to realize we could invent the future. I knew I thought how I'd lost the sense of a future and how my horizons had been narrowed through my surgery and my experiences with the healthcare system. What I didn't know was how we'd reached a similar position politically. So why had we lost a sense of imagination? And how could we get back on track? The main theme that emerged for me in writing the book was that we've lost a sense of the role of values in politics at a parliamentary level and at a local or campaigning level. Values are principles that we hold dear that contribute to a life well-led. And my main argument in the, in the book is that we need a reassertion of a values-based politics, a politics more centrally motivated by values and more focused on securing values and outcome. To some people, this might sound obvious, or what politics is already about. Politicians do talk about values, right? Especially in their maiden speeches when they first enter parliament. And campaigners often refer to politicians needing to adhere to values that they've talked about. So what's holding us back from a more fully-fledged values-based politics? And what's the opposite of a values-based politics? Well, first, politics has become technical and technocratic, the preserve of experts. And that has crowded out space, I think, for open discussion of values. The language of our politics has become dominated by the language of corporate management, the stunted language of trade-offs, of clients and consumers, of best practice. That language misses the fact that we're a country, not a company. One example of technocratic politics in action is the recently developed social investment approach. There's great potential in any policy that attempts to find effective ways to spend money in order to make a difference. And that's what the social investment approach claims to be. But very few people whom I talked to or whose work I read understood precisely what the social investment approach is. And many people felt that important value judgments were obscured by this language of social investment. Value judgments about who is getting that investment, where it is going, how it works. But the problem of technocratic politics is not just a problem of language. And language reflects our priorities. Nor is it a problem confined to this country in fact, the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has recently spoken about how in Europe there is a shift because of the rise of technical politics from democracy to technocracy. And this shift is one barrier to a more values-driven politics, I think. Second, politics has become a little directionless. And this has blocked values from being seen as an end goal of politics. Pragmatism has become the watchword of successive New Zealand governments. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong, in fact, there's plenty right about being practical, but being pragmatic doesn't mean anything in itself, and it's all too often a code or a cover for value judgments. It might not even be a New Zealand way of thinking or doing things. If you look back uh, at British uh, political discussions in the 19th century, there are lots of references to the genius of British political thinking being pragmatism. And we don't have to take forward all of this British inheritance. Another dimension of our directionless politics is politicians' resistance to talking about big ideas or visions. In 2011, when asked what his vision was, United Future leader Peter Dunn said, I'm not into visions. And this is a view shared by many, but perhaps not all politicians. Our politics has become about muddling through and getting by. 
And again, this isn't unique to New Zealand politics. In fact, I think one of the reasons that we see a strain of nostalgia emerging in some countries' politics, a harking back to empire in the UK before and after Brexit, the call to make America great again, is that it's easier to look back to some romanticized false past when there's no clear future-facing destination. Muddle through politics with that hint of nostalgia might allow us to manage problems, but it doesn't move us anywhere. In 1943, New Zealand artist Len Lai wrote an essay called A Definition of Common Purpose. It's that common purpose, that shared direction, that feels lacking today. So values-based politics has been held back by the trends towards politics becoming technical and technocratic and politics becoming directionless. And I think it's thirdly been prevented by a rise, especially since the 1980s, in selfishness and self-interestedness in society at large. This is the product, at least in part, of policies initiated in the late 1980s by the Labour Party, continued by the National Party in the early 1990s, which chipped away at collective institutions and indeed the idea of a society and legitimized the notion that an individual does best by pursuing their self-interest. Examples of these policies include a drastic cutting of top rates of income tax, the Employment Contracts Act 1991, which undermined unions, and harsh reductions in welfare benefit payments. This rise of individualism has been reinforced by technology and also by a celebrity culture that sanctions mean-spirited, judgmental competitiveness in everyday life. And that fusion of narcissistic politics and mean-spirited celebrity culture is perhaps no better represented than in the figure of President Donald Trump. It's a fusion that normalizes talk about what is best for the individual and makes it harder to talk about looking outside of ourselves. It displaces values with selfishness and to the extent that any values are left over, there are a narrow set of individualistic values. So it's not just any values-based politics that I support. I believe our first task is to rehabilitate values-based politics generally. A values-based politics has similarities to Maori ways of thinking about dispute resolution and collective action. A values-based politics connects to the heart as well as to the head. And we know from research, for example, from the World Wildlife Fund's Common Cause report, that people's minds are shifted not by flooding people with facts, but by appealing to values. Our next pressing task, though, to fill the vacuum in future direction and to respond to the pressures of technocracy and individualism is to propose a specific set of values that could guide our politics. I believe those values should be care, community, and creativity. Let me explain what I think they mean and why I think they're important, especially now. Care is a deep concern for another thing, whether that's a person, the environment, or something else. The Maori equivalent is often said to be manaakitanga, but it may be that aroha comes closer to the expansive notion of care that I support. I've also been influenced by feminist writing on the ethic of care. Care doesn't have to be patronizing, but I think this value is necessary in the society we now live in. I've already discussed the rise in self-interestedness, what social psychologists have called narcissism creep, for which there is some, um, albeit limited, evidence in New Zealand. And care is an antidote to that narcissism creep. It's also needed because, relatedly, we have normalized a set of uncaring narratives about people, including people sleeping rough, people in prison, people receiving a benefit, and others. And those narratives say that homeless people have made bad choices, that those in prison are monsters that deserve to be locked up, or that beneficiaries are lazy, are not just often based on inaccurate evidence. They can also be hurtful for the people who are at the center of these narratives, and an ethos of care helps us to challenge them. So that's care. Community involves recognizing that we're all entangled and interdependent, and that we should not drift too far apart. One of the reasons I think that uncaring narratives can be so unblink unblinkingly repeated is that we've grown apart through rising inequality since the 1980s. And the distance between us and society in terms of economic gaps and also physical segregation, geographical segregation, often along ethnic lines, has made it harder to empathize with one another and easier to adopt mean-spirited, dismissive rhetoric about other people. Upholding the value of community involves committing to reduce that distance between us. It does not, by the way, have to involve exclusionary, xenophobic political comments about immigrants. I've been reinforced in my view that we need to reassert the value of community by seeing increased concern with loneliness amongst young people, the elderly, and many others who I've talked to. 
Whether people are lonelier now than ever before is hard to tell. What I think we can say is that the focus on loneliness may well reflect a realization that at least for some of us, we need community. Creativity, the third C alongside care and community, involves being open to new ways of thinking and doing, being appreciative of imagination, and being willing to produce or create things afresh. It isn't often talked about as a value or in the context of politics, but it is a principle that we can hold dear that I think can contribute to a better politics. The idea that our imaginations have become closed in recent years, our impulse towards creativity stifled, has been expressed by many people in New Zealand and overseas. The Indian writer Arundhati Roy recently collected her essays in a book called The End of Imagination. Auckland-based artist Judy Miller has said in Anthony Burt's wonderful This Modelled World, travels to the edge of contemporary art, it's only through imagination that we know anything. She goes on to say, it's absolutely crucial right now that humans open their imaginations. We've had them shut down. Moana Jackson, the, the lawyer and thinker, also told me that they say politics is the art of the possible, but unless it's the art of what might not seem possible now, but what should be possible, we won't ever have a visionary, imaginative politics. Bringing creativity into politics also means those in politics drawing on the insights of artists, poets, filmmakers, and theater makers. They're the canaries in our collective coal mine. They often express the spirit of our time, negative or positive, well before the rest of us can see or feel that spirit. So these values, care, community, and creativity, I think need to be secured together in a way that's harmonious, in a way that involves no conflict between, say, creativity and care, and I think that's possible. I stumbled across a passage in Irish poet Louis McNeese's Autumn Journal, which on this autumn afternoon in Auckland seems to sum up the significance of these three values well. The passage reads, and when we clear away all this debris of day-by-day -day experience, what comes out to light? What is there of value lasting from day to day? He goes on, life would be, as it often seems, flat if it were merely a matter of not dying. For each individual then would be fighting a losing battle. But with life as collective creation, the rout is rallied, the battle begins again. Only give us the courage of our instinct, the will to truth and love's initiative, then we could hope to live a life beyond the self, but self-completing. McNeese is asking about our enduring values. What is there of value lasting from day to day? And he points out that a focus on not dying is part of our project in life, something that's felt true to me. But we can also be more ambitious, he says. We can see life as collective creation, as an activity embodying community and creativity, which is, for McNeese, a way to lead a life beyond the self, but self-completing, what we might call a life of care. It's worth noting that McNeese thinks that love Love's initiative is relevant to all of this, which is a point I'd like to come back to. So these values, care, community, and creativity, are values that are important in themselves, that we need right now, I think, and that most New Zealanders would sign up to. How, though, do we realize these values in practice? So having tried to describe what a values-based politics is, the barriers to it, and what care, community, and creativity are, I want to describe what I see as the prerequisites of a values-based politics. And then I want to explain what a values-based politics might mean in three areas of politics. In the field of foreign policy, in criminal justice and prisons, um, and in relation to work. I don't think it's possible to build a values-based politics of the kind I've advocated for without our having a, co a conversation about decolonization. I'm not the best place to define what decolonization is or what it requires. But Ani Makairi, Tariana Turia, and others agree that decolonization involves, at the very least, understanding and undoing the negative effects of colonization that remain with us and recentering the views of indigenous peoples of Maori and Aotearoa New Zealand. This word decolonization isn't often heard in public discussion of politics here but it's been discussed and demanded for years by Moana Jackson, by Tariana Turia, by Ani Makairi and others. It involves owning our history, redistributing public power to Māori so that they are guaranteed the tino rangatiratanga that's protected under Article 2 of the Treaty of Waitangi, ensuring that Māori are given a significant voice in the New Zealand project. 
Decolonization is a precondition of the values-based politics I've talked about for several reasons. First, our politics will only be legitimate in the eyes of everyone when we've reckoned with our past and reckoned with it fully. Secondly, care, community, and creativity can't be the guiding principles of our politics if our community is on an unequal footing. Ani Makairi is right that successful lives as Māori require a good deal more than simply measuring up to a Pākehā standard. But it's nevertheless true that major inequalities remain between Māori and Pākehā. And if those inequalities persist, a push for care, community, and creativity is likely only to preserve existing imbalances and to mean care, community, and creativity for some of us. Third, the values of care, community, and creativity have a close connection to core aspects of tikanga Māori, the first law of Aotearoa New Zealand. Manaakitanga, aroha, whanaungatanga, wahatanga. And their promises values will only be fully realized, I think, and properly grounded in this place if Māori play a central part in defining and interpreting those values. Fourth, decolonization helps to fasten our attention on the issue of power, who holds it and who doesn't hold it, which helps us in implying, applying care, community, and creativity in concrete ways. Two other things need to be secured, I think, for a, for a values-based politics to be meaningful. We need to have a conversation about the state, what we want the state to do within a values-based politics. Because my view is we've lost sight of what the state is good at and some of the special features of the state, its ability to connect up different services, to achieve economies of scale, to borrow at low cost for major investments. And a first principles conversation about this, while it, it might not be a sexy conversation or an interesting conversation to all of us, can help to unwind some of the changes from the 1980s and 1990s that undermine the role of values in politics and might help us to work towards a new economic model. Additionally, at the same time, I think we need genuine people power. A more robust role for the state will become top-down and detached if it's not driven by people. And for that to happen, we need to address the fact that large groups of people, including some young people, are demoralized and desensitized in their interactions with politics. Changing the types of people in parliamentary politics and introducing civics education will go some way towards reversing demoralization and desensitization, but it won't address the root causes. What's also needed is a more thoroughgoing change in our political culture. I'll return to that shortly. So with these preconditions or prerequisites in mind, what would a values-based politics look like? How would it be different from the politics of today? First, in the sphere of foreign policy, I think we could reclaim the idea of independent foreign policy which says that our foreign policy should be driven by values as opposed to just collective self-interest. Interestingly, in recent weeks, the US under Trump has explicitly disavowed a values-based approach to foreign policy. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has said in the context of describing his America first approach to foreign policy, I think it's really important that all of us understand the difference between policy and values. We don't have to drive that same wedge between policy and values here. It's of course difficult for foreign policy not to involve some element of collective self-interest. In some ways, a values-based foreign policy might also be interest-based, just involves redefining what our interests are. But the point is we don't have to be as resistant as Rex Tillerson to the role of values in foreign policy. An independent foreign policy means three things. Ethically justified foreign policy, foreign policy that's relatively non-aligned that isn't too closely tied to one country, and foreign policy that's creatively pursued. At times in recent years, governments have adhered to this approach, as when perhaps the national-led government withstood pressure to support a UN Security Council resolution condemning Israeli settlements. But I think we've drifted from independent foreign policy in recent years, and I think reasserting an independent, values-based foreign policy could provide a platform for new directions. I mentioned just two, and only briefly, New Zealand could invest in peace, arbitration, and mediation training for diplomats and seek to be an arbitrator internationally in the same way that Norway and Finland have developed this capability. That would solidify our independent position and honor the commitment to peace, which has actually rung throughout our history in the reference to peace in the English version of the Treaty of Waitangi, or in Te Fiti Orongamai's aspiration to be an author of peace in his nonviolent stand at Parihaka in 1881. Finland achieved this turn towards being an arbitrator through a concerted decision to make peace a comparative advantage in foreign policy, as I heard when I traveled to Finland last year. 
And New Zealand has some of the building blocks of this comparative advantage with, for example, the National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies, which was set up in 2009 in Otago University. That's one area where we could move in a new direction because of this values-based approach within foreign policy. Another is in the area of climate change displacement. In particular, New Zealand might be more vocal in drawing attention to the position of the increasingly large number of individuals affected by climate change in the Pacific. Tuvalu and Kiribati especially face rising sea levels and severe climate change effects. Yet New Zealand has been slow to shift domestic policy on this. We've heard very little about this from our politicians. And we've been relatively inactive in international bodies like the Nansen Initiative or the Platform on Disaster Displacement, despite calls by Pacifica activists in New Zealand. Pacifica people have a long history as part of the New Zealand community, of course, and care might prompt greater action on climate displacement, at least in the Pacific, perhaps not only in the Pacific. Creative steps that could be taken include expanding the number of Pacific migrants from climate-affected countries, or pushing for a global climate change refugee convention. In the field of justice away from foreign policy, there are many areas that cry out for action. But to focus on just one, we might approach prison policy different, where we're more centrally guided by a values-based politics. New Zealand imprisons 210 per 100,000 of our population, according to the International Center for Prison Studies. That's 30% more per capita than Australia, 45% more than the United Kingdom, and 84% more than Canada. The only way in which we punch above our weight on this issue internationally is by being the harshest and the most punitive, and that's nothing to be proud of. The overrepresentation of Māori has also worsened over time. Since the 1980s, 50% of our prison population has been Māori, and this year it reached a record 56%. As well, we hear story after story of ill-treatment of people in prison, irresponsible use of restraints, prison fights in the Serco-run private prison, and regular prison suicides. We need to understand the causes of our high imprisonment rate, yes, and the causes of overrepresentation of Māori, the causes of poor treatment of people in prison. And these causes include institutional racism and a cultural punitiveness, but we also need to act urgently to change the state of affairs. Prisons deny our fundamentally social nature, they rip apart families, they have a poor record of achieving rehabilitation, and they're expensive. They embody a failure of the value of care. It might be said that they're necessary to provide care for victims, but there's no reason why care cannot be provided for victims, something that I think is an imperative, while it is also extended to those who have committed offences. I say all this not as some out-of-touch outsider who's never been into a prison. I've done prison work and volunteer training in three New Zealand prisons, in Mount Eden, in ACRP, in Aruhata, and I've also spent the last three months in the UK facilitating a course called Learning Together, which brought together university students and prison students, some of whom committed very serious crimes in Grendon Prison outside of Oxford. And these experiences form the basis of what I say here. Now, it's not true that no one is talking about these problems. The Chief Ombudsman, Judge Peter Bosher, has been outspoken, especially in recent weeks. Journalists have been critical. The Waitangi Tribunal has declared a breach of treaty principles. And organisations like Just Speak and No Pride in Prisons have demanded radical change. But politicians don't seem to be serious about addressing this national disgrace, despite Prime Minister Bill English saying in 2011 that prisons are a moral and fiscal failure. A values-based approach to prison and criminal justice policy would bring the problem with mass incarceration into sharp relief and would suggest some ways forward. I travelled to Norway with the support of the New Zealand Law Foundation to find out how a different approach to criminal justice was cultivated there. It's often thought that prison policy in Scandinavia has always been enlightened. But a number of people I interviewed, including lawyers, criminologists, judges and police, some of whom were speaking off the record, told me that it was only since the 1970s that Norway had reduced its prison population. And a concerted decision was made, a concerted decision that we could make here. What factors made this change possible? Three things were pointed out to me again and again. First, an underlying commitment to forgiveness in Norwegian culture that was drawn up when it might have been obscured for some time. Second, the work of one effective campaigning group, CROM, which brought together prisoners and politicians, academics and lawyers and others, and a brave politician, Inga Louise Valla. 
I visited a prison, Bastoy prison, in order to see what the Norwegian criminal justice system was like on the inside. Bastoy, located on an island off Oslo, was spacious, had a high staff to inmate ratio, 72 staff for 115 inmates. It gave inmates option for meaningful work. And I was told there that it was founded on principles of normality, being as much like the society outside as possible, and the principle of being a good neighbor. I spoke to the prison governor, Tom Eberhardt. He told me, the inmates are not released with hatred towards society. We haven't taken their hope away. We went on to say, justice means more than revenge in Norway. Revenge in criminal justice, he said, is like pissing your pants in Norway. It feels good at first, then you start to freeze. <laughs> I also spoke to an MP, Kari Henriksen, who said that she could imagine herself being violent or imagine herself being a criminal and that this was essential to good criminal justice policy making. I think we could draw on some of these lessons in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The prisons that we do need, if we need them, could be redesigned along Norwegian lines for now with options for meaningful work, emphasis on normality, being a good neighbor, high staff to inmate ratio. But we also need to take urgent steps to reduce Maori overrepresentation and to tackle over-incarceration. Problem-solving courts, such as the existing drug courts and homelessness courts that have been championed by some courageous judges in New Zealand, might be used with greater resourcing and oversight as a substitute for short prison sentences. These are courts that involve supervised rehabilitation and contact between a judge and an offender. You might also consider adopting a Canadian sentencing provision which asks judges to inquire into the background of indigenous offenders uh, and to ask whether reduced culpability should follow from that inquiry. But a values-based politics should shift our thinking as well as our policies and might lead us third to a politics of love. Love might be the fourth value to accompany care, community and creativity. Love is a deep sense of warmth directed towards another. It's about meaningful relationships. And I don't see why it couldn't be a motivating force and an end goal for politics to stand in for the self-interest, the self-protection, the cynicism that currently seems to predominate. I'm not the first person to make this suggestion. Other writers, especially Bell Hooks and Michael Hart and Cornell West, have discussed a love-based politics. It's true that love is a tarnished word in lots of communities, and it might be that we need to reclaim and redefine what love is to achieve a politics of love. Love doesn't have to be passive either. I think it can prompt anger and struggle, and doesn't have to be inconsistent with those things. I say in the book that a politics of love could take us towards a reimagining of work, which might include a universal basic income pilot of the kind currently being evaluated in Finland. A universal basic income involves a regular payment to individuals, regardless of whether they're working. And it's one way to respond to the fact of insecure work that exists currently in New Zealand. As of December 2012, 635,000 people were in insecure work, according to the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. There are lots of ways to respond to this. Responses might include adopting something like an insecure work benefit, measuring insecure work more precisely, strengthening unions. But a universal basic income is a novel idea that would pr provide money for a rainy day, as I was told by Finnish policymaker Oli Kangas, who is heading up their pilot. A basic income could remove some of the stigma and bureaucracy currently faced by those on benefits, could free up time for individuals and communities to pursue projects, whether in the field of arts or business or household labor. Basic income is not without its weaknesses. It would prove very costly if rolled out on a national scale, and some have worried that it's a way to dismantle the welfare state by the back door. But a pilot, which would be cheaper and could cost somewhere between 10 and 30 million New Zealand dollars, could help to gather evidence and could start a much needed national debate about the place of work and leisure in our lives. And in my view, such a pilot would give effect to a politics of love. It would express warmth towards recipients of a basic income and would create space for love and care in people's lives. It could honor the late great Paul Callahan's claim that what really counts in life is love, to do the work that you love, to find the partner you love, to act always with love. But wouldn't people disagree about what follows from care, community, and creativity, and maybe even love? 
Couldn't some people use these starting points to reach the opposite of the conclusions I've reached? Talking, say, of tough love? Absolutely. There are three parts to my argument, a call for a values-based politics, a call for a politics grounded in care, community, and creativity, and a call for specific changes that I see as flowing from care, community, and creativity. And if a large group of people at least affirm the idea of a values-based politics and accept the starting points of care, community, creativity, maybe love, then I'd be happy. All values can be interpreted in different ways, including freedom, justice, equality, and fairness, values that we're comfortable with. We need to have the argument out about what these values require, including love. But is this all too soft for the ruthless world of politics? Are these values nice sounding, but won't they get just shut down by vested interests? I think we need to catch ourselves as we ask these questions and make sure we're not boxing ourselves in based on politics as usual, forcing ourselves to fit into that Overton window I was discussing earlier. Jose Esteban Munoz has written that our climate is dominated by a dismissal of political idealism. The anti-utopian critic of today has a well-worn war chest at her or his disposal to shut down lines of thought. Fighting for care, community, and creativity, even love, in a world dominated by individualism is far from soft. It's hard. It involves taking on the crushing, paralyzing cynicism of our era. I think it requires strength and toughness. But the other thing I'd say, which I added at a late stage, and I add tentatively, is maybe we do need a bit more softness in our politics. Pope Francis recently spoke about a revolution of tenderness. And though I'm not Catholic, perhaps that's not all, far, all that far from the mark. But how do we change our political culture? How do we create space for our politicians to be bolder and braver and more imaginative on issues like prison policy or climate change displacement or the future of work? I don't want to set out a how-to manual for getting to the changes I proposed here. That would be overreaching. How-to manuals work with inanimate objects. Politics involves moving parts, unpredictable events, and different people. I think we're better off suggesting principles, not point-by-point -point prescriptions. Politics is also done better together with all of us, doers, dreamers, joiners, offering our own versions of a New Zealand project. My book in the main aims to underscore that a different way is possible and to open a space for voices moving in that direction. I don't, however, want you to leave this room without any concrete suggestions for taking the New Zealand project forward. So here are some ideas. We can encourage our politicians to be bolder and braver. We can also put pressure on them by joining campaigns and, putting, uh, and, and, and uh, trying to ensure that they shift their positions. French philosopher Guy Debord wrote in The Society of the Spectacle, published 50 years ago this year, ideas alone cannot achieve progress. People must set a practical force into motion. And this is the single most effective way that change has been sparked in New Zealand, from the Māori land march in the 1970s through to the nuclear free campaign into the recent pay equity victory. There are lessons we can learn too from successful campaigns, whether from here in New Zealand or from overseas, such as the work of Black Lives Matter or the indigenous-led opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. I might not be the best place to draw out those lessons. In fact, there are some New Zealanders involved with those campaigns, including the lawyer and my friend Kingy Snellgar, who was at Standing Rock. But some of the things I think we can take from them are that we ought to center the voices of those most affected by a policy, indigenous people in the case of Standing Rock, African-Americans in the case of Black Lives Matter. Those people are likely to speak with the most authenticity and urgency and power Another lesson is that we can speak the language of values, and a further is that we can support the work of young people without discounting the potential of intergenerational coalitions that combine the imagination of young people with the insight and experiences of people who've lived more years on this earth. How do we find the campaigns? One place to start might be looking at people already doing the work of champ championing values in communities. They might not be working in political roles. I found some of them in the writing of my book amongst doctors, teachers, people in business, musicians, academics, and others. And finally, campaigning is not for all of us. And if it's not for you, I think it's valuable to have conversations about values, especially with people whom you might disagree with. Could love be the basis of our politics? What do we believe in, and where should we be going? These are questions I should point out 
that we can all ask or answer, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum or whether we're on that spectrum at all, just as the project of a values-based politics can be directed at both the left and the right. This is not all new. People have talked about values-based politics, including many Māori thinkers and activists, including uh, more recently with the values-based party. Some of what I've discussed, though, is not orthodox, say, for instance, the idea of a politics of love. But what is different, what we've never faced before, is the context of our times. Ahead of us are unprecedented challenges, in particular the challenge of climate change. And inequality, political timidity, mean that we've ignored other persistent challenges, such as mass incarceration, child poverty, insecure work and homelessness. But we have an opportunity to take on these challenges in New Zealand. We're small enough in these islands, under that long white cloud, that a change of heart can be achieved here, nowhere else. And I think we need to piece together the best of our past, the best of our bicultural traditions, what Michael King described as retracing New Zealand footsteps in order to face the future. I think what Emerson said of his time is right for ours too. Namely, this time, like all times, is a very good one if we but know what to do with it. In closing, I can't help but draw parallels again between my own medical experience and this country as a whole. I discovered almost three years ago that I had a connective tissue disorder. And it feels to me if it's not too much of a stretch, that there might be some weakness in the bonds that connect us together in this country too. In that hospital in Oxford almost three years ago, I had part of my aorta corrected. Now it might be time to repair our country's heart, to get our pulse, that pulse of our social conscience beating again. But this operation doesn't require surgeons or expert medical practitioners. This project requires all of us, since we are all experts in the future of this country. And it requires all of the intelligence that I referred to at the outset of this lecture. It requires all of the experience. It requires all of the imagination. And yes, it requires all of the love that we can muster. Noreira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.